just curious as we're getting started here how are you doing on your new year's resolutions all right is anybody like still even partially kind of doing them okay wow worse than first service we had four in first service we have zero i think here okay Wow. All right. You know, it's interesting on the whole New Year's resolution deal. We do these things because like, well, I'll have either a better quality of life or I'll live longer. Anybody know the average lifespan for a U.S. citizen? Want to take a wild guess? That's very close. If you said 80, it's actually 79.3 years. Okay, Uh, and it's a good thing we have women in our country because they're the ones that drive up the average. Okay, it's always good. If you're a a woman, your average lifespan here in the States, 81.6 years. And, of course, the guys kind of lagging behind, creating a little problem there. We come in at 76.9. So let's just say, you know, looking around here, you guys are all super healthy. Uh, I can see all of our D-Now folks, and you have, like, slept four hours in the last 72. Uh, You're super healthy. You're, You're eating right. You're sleeping right. Let's just round it up to 80. And I was thinking about this. Here's a tape measure. Let's say... Let's call it an inch for a year, okay? So let's look at the average lifespan here. All right, here we go. 80. All right, wow, look at all this life right there. So I'm, I'm going to ask you to fully engage your brain, okay? And I want you to think deeply. This is going to be a tough question for some of you, but I'd like you to be thinking about how old you are, okay? Do you have it locked in there? You don't have to share it. If you're not sure, ask your spouse, okay? All right, there you go. Okay, you got it? So let's say you're 10 years old here, and somehow you have escaped out of kids' church, and here you are, okay? I want you to know, like, you have, look at all this life you have left here, all right? But let's say, okay, you're 20. Okay, now it's kind of locked on here. Let's say you're 20 years old. Well, you have about this much left, okay? And, uh, you know, let's say you're 40, okay? Did you know that's, like, midlife? Okay, so I want you to see how much life you have, like, Okay, uh, not as much as before, huh? And, you know, you can't keep our working our way down here. You know, let's say you are 60 years old. Whoa, this is it, right here. And, you know, if you're, if you're 70, okay, and if you are 80 or more, I want you to know you're alive by grace, Okay. You're beating the average, okay? There is a reason that God has you on this earth. When I did this in first service, I had one guy start clapping for himself. He was so happy he had made it, okay? Some of you are not as excited that you're alive over 80, but I want you to be thinking about this because I've got a couple questions for you. What have you done with the time that you've been given? I mean, really, kind of just, what's happened with the time that you've been given? And I do have this other question. What are you going to do with the time that you have left. I want you to understand that God wants you to experience meaning and joy in life. And that is impossible apart from relationship with himself. That's why God has given us the book of Ecclesiastes right in the middle of your Bible. And this is a book, oftentimes it's just kind of neglected because it's hard hard to understand because Solomon makes these statements that life is vain It seems empty, and I want you to know that is exactly right. Life apart from a living, loving relationship with God, it's empty, it's vanity of vanities, and it seems futile. And some of us have had to figure this out the hard way. We've tried to squeeze life out of some sort of idol, okay, whether it be like popularity or a certain position or making a lot of money. 
We're, maybe it's a person we've idealized and idolized, and it always lets us down because, you see, God has created like this vacuum in our life, and it's fit only for him. And until you and I come to a place where we realize life apart from God is absolutely futile and start trusting in him, it is going to be a painful process, this life that we live. And so just to kind of review, as we've been making our way through the book of Ecclesiastes, we have seen this theme that life apart from God is meaningless. And yet God tells us that he wants us to know him and to enjoy him. In fact, you can't enjoy life apart from God. And if you remember from chapter 6, when we looked at it last time, Ecclesiastes chapter 6 basically presents how futile life is apart from God. In fact, the last section, Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verses 8 through 12, it's kind of like life without divine leadership is futility. You see, if we are not gaining wisdom from God, we're not actually consulting him and we're not walking with him, life ends up being pretty meaningless, very vain. And so this, these verses, 8 through 12 and chapter 6, they're kind of like the fulcrum. They actually set up the rest of the book because chapter 7 through 12 talks about wisdom. 30 different times he uses the word wise or wisdom or how to walk wisely. All of this is to show that God wants us to experience joy. He wants us to live life to its fullest. And so he actually gives us wisdom. It's actually given to us in his word. And if you want to experience God's joy and you want to live life well, you want to live in his wisdom, you don't have to guess. He's actually revealed it and he's written it down in his word. And so really the difference between delight and despair in life is what you do with God and his wisdom. So how does God's wisdom really change our lives? Well, that's what we're going to look at today. Beginning in chapter 7, verses 1 through 4, we're going to see that God's wisdom gives an eternal perspective. You see, God in his wisdom has a way of breaking us away from living just the short-term uh, focus on the fleeting feelings of life to live with a much broader perspective, like how does this affect the rest of my life, my legacy, my integrity, and even how does this have bearing in the life to come? An eternal perspective is a most precious, productive and priceless possession. So let's take a look at it. God gives wisdom so that we can have an eternal perspective. Let's take a look at it. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 1. A good name is better than a good ointment. And the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. What? This, verses like this are reasons why people skip over the book of Ecclesiastes. Like, what? Wait a second. Day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth? Well, what, what is he talking about here? Well, let me help you understand. The first part of that verse helps you understand the second part. And what he's saying is, if you really want value and true riches in life, it's found in a good name. A good name is better than a good ointment. To speak of one's name in Hebrew thought refers to one's reputation or their character, how they live what they value, who they worship, the decisions and investments that they make. This is all one's character, their reputation. And it's very interesting in the Hebrew, uh, this would immediately catch their eye when they started reading Hebrews chapter 7, because he says a good name, the Hebrew word for name is Shem, is better than a good ointment. And the very next word is ointment is Shemen. You see, a good Shem is better than a good Shemen. And so they'd see this, and it's meant to drive home a point. 
far more important than you having wealth or some nice perfume is that you've got a great character. You've got a good name. There's really two days in our lives where our name is most prominent. The day that you are born and you are given a name. Hey, what's the baby's name? And they say it. And the second day that the, really your name stands out is the day that you pass away and it appears in the obituary. And between those two prominent times of the giving of a name, you have the development of a character, the reputation of that name. And your name is either going to cause people to cringe or it's going to be a delight, like a fragrant ointment. And let me give you another verse on this, because the Bible really challenges kind of our American way of thinking. We think it's all about like money and, and success and position. God says, really, life is all about relationship with me and me developing your character, that you be, reflect me and how you live. So let me give you a proverb. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 1, it says, A good name is to be more desired than great wealth, and favor is better than silver and gold. A good name, that's, that's far more important than you having a lot of money. Most people don't think that way. That's because their thinking is off. They are lacking God's wisdom. There's a guy by the name of Bill Bright. Uh, he's since passed away, but he was the founder of a Christian movement that continues on today. It's called Campus Crusade for Christ. Now it's just called Crew. And uh, this man's ministry had significant influence and still does even today for my life as well as my wife. And he grew up in Oklahoma in the 20s and 30s, and he watched how his dad and his grandfather did business. They'd talk about something, and then they just shook hands with some guy or some gal, and that's all it took. If they shook hands on it, it was as good as done. How do things happen today? Well, uh, let me have my lawyer take a look at it, and I'll get back to you on this, right? And can you, like, sign and you have put initials, make sure you understand all of these things here? Yeah, I know we shook hands, but that doesn't mean anything. What means it matters is that I've got a legal document that says you're going to execute and do what you've said to do in writing here. That's not how business was done with uh, Bill's father and his grandfather in the 20s and 30s. But he didn't realize just how important his, his uh, father's and his grandfather's name was until later on. 1948. Uh, he's going to marry a beautiful woman by the name of Vanette Zachary. And so he's driving back from California to uh, Oklahoma where he's going to marry this gal. And as it would be, uh, you know, when you're kind of like throwing the wedding together and you think of things like, ah, and he thought of as he's, he's in um, Okmulgee, Oklahoma, that he has failed to purchase some important gifts for some important people in their wedding party. And so in Okmulgee, Oklahoma, he stops there at a jewelry store and he gathers all these gifts that he wants to buy. And uh, this is before credit cards. You know, credit cards don't really start until about the 1950s. Uh, these are the days where you wrote a personal check. And so he's got all these gifts. He brings it up to the guy at the counter who happens to own the store. And he says, you know, I'd like to purchase these things. And I want to know, will you take an out-of-state check? And the store owner said, I'm sorry, we have a policy. No, we take no out-of-state checks. He's like, are you kidding me? Oh, man. And then the store owner said, hey, do you have anybody that you know around these parts here that could maybe kind of vouch for your honesty here, that you'd actually come through, that you have the funds? And he's like, well, no, I don't. You know, my grandfather, he used to live around here uh, for a lot of years, but he's been dead for several years, and I, so I don't have anybody. He's like, well, really? Well, so who is your grandfather? And he said, well, Sam Bright. 
store owner to double look, eyes wide open. He says, Sam Bright? He says, well, that is the finest, most honorable man I ever knew. If you're his grandson and even just partly like him, you can purchase anything you want in my store and I will gladly take your check. And it sunk in deeply in Bill's life. The power and the blessing of a good name. That's what this verse is saying. A good name is better than a good ointment. And he says, and the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. Let me help you understand that. You see, at the day of your death, you've had the opportunity by God's grace to establish a good name. At the day of your birth, you got a name, but we don't know really what's going to come of it. That's why he's saying the day of one's death is better. Because you've had the opportunity to establish a good name. And notice how we mark a person's lifespan. We do it with a dash. You look at a gravestone, it's got the date they were born, the dash, and the date that they died. That dash is so critically important. It basically symbolizes what did you do with the life that God gave you? Is your life like a fragrant aroma? Attractive, bringing respect, noble, good. Or does your name go, hmm, doesn't smell too good. And I'll tell you, you and I, we need God for a good name. There are multiple words in the Hebrew language for sin. One of those is kata. It means to miss the mark or to go the wrong way. So if you were shooting at a target or at game and you missed the perfect mark, it's kata. Or you went the wrong way. Kata, sin. You're going the wrong direction. And God understands that we are sinful by nature. That is why he's not only promised a deliverer, but he has given us one in Jesus Christ. To actually address the sin issues in our life. To actually pay the penalty for all of our wrongdoing. And by virtue of the resurrection of Christ... To give us life so that you and I can actually establish a good name. Because, friends, what's far more important than how much money you've got or your position is what you're doing with your name and the character that you have. That's what makes someone wealthy. Now, some of you will be familiar with a guy by the name of Kyle Rote Jr., okay? Perhaps America's first major soccer star. And uh, Kyle had a dad by the name of Kyle Rote Senior, uh, some of you, if you're thinking back, played for the New York Giants, Kyle Rote Sr. For 10 years, he was the team captain. And Kyle Rote Jr., in an interview talking about his dad, said, you know, of all the accolades and compliments my dad received, by far, the one that was the most important to him was what 14 of his fellow teammates did when they had kids, and they named their boys Kyle. You see, they saw in this Christian man that it was more than a, well, I'll have faith when I'm at chapel or at church, and then I'm going to do whatever I want for the rest of my life. No, that he had integrity, that his relationship with Christ affected how he lived his life. He had such a good name. It was so attractive that these guys said, man, I hope that my boy might turn out to be half the man that this Kyle is. So I think I'll just name him Kyle. And so I just want to ask you, what's the reputation of your name. If we were to just show up at work and just said, hey, what do you think of Sally or Jim? You know, what adjectives would you use to describe? What would they say? Or in your neighborhood? Or 
at your school? What is your reputation in this church? And most importantly, in your family, what is your name? On occasion, I've told my kids, listen, you are a call kid. Walk with God and make us proud. I want them to understand they got a name. That's one of their most precious possessions. And I, I want to address something here. At some point, someone's going to attack your good name. If you are a leader, and I know that we've got a lot of leaders in our church, you've already experienced it's likely. And for sure you will if you're a leader of influence. You see, we almost think it's an American right. You don't like someone, what they did, that you can just assassinate their character. You can say whatever you want to say. You can blog about it. You could send an email laced with a little slander and libel. Uh, we've, we're fine with that. By the way, they're in another political party, so of course I can just blow their lives up and destroy their character. They made me mad. You, you think about the people that have like slandered your character. Or maybe you're the one that's actually been doing the, ba- you know, the trash talking about someone and their name, their character, their reputation. And you're like, you know, I'm justified. I don't like what they did. I don't like their decision. Um, It was just flat out wrong. And so I am justified in destroying their name. I got news for you. It's not justifiable. It is sinful and evil. I want you to know on the occasions that I've had to experience this, some of my most painful memories are when someone has tried to attack my character. I mean, some of you know firsthand, it is painful. What are you going to do? Well, I want, you to, I want you to know what you need to do is you need to think a lot about Jesus. Jesus is well acquainted with all of our griefs. You know, Jesus is fully God, and he's also fully man. Do you know that Jesus had a guy in his inner circle by the name of Judas? Remember him? And Judas was his betrayer. And don't think that when Judas sold out Jesus or when the Pharisees and the scribes and the Jewish religion leadership were attacking Jesus character and saying, oh, you've got a demon and all these other things. Don't think that that had no effect on Jesus. Like, well, he was God. So it just kind of like he was oblivious to that pain. Actually, he felt it all just like you and I. I mean, it's blasphemous to call the son of God like you're a spawn of Satan. But yet he had to endure that. So when your good name is under attack, let me tell you a couple things. You need to, I'll tell you actually three things. You need to, first of all, have a game plan. You might want to write this down. First Peter chapters two and three become your playbook when your name is under attack. Um, Let me tell you something else you need to do. You need to pray. You need to pray, just like Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. Pray for those who persecute you. Matthew chapter 5 verse 44. And then the third thing. In your times with the Lord and you're asking Jesus for strength and you're finding your identity not what people are saying about you or writing about you, but about who you really are in Christ, your identity in Christ, you let Jesus define you, not people's statements. So that you come to a place in your life where you can say like Jesus did on the cross. Luke chapter 23, verse 34, while he's hanging there, he uttered this statement multiple times. 
Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. That was true of those who were casting lots for his clothing. That was true for those who were mocking him and betraying him. That was true for Judas, who actually sold him out. That was true of his disciples. Instead of like being right there with him, oh no, we're either gone or we're hanging way out in the distance because we don't want to be next. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Friends, your name, it's precious. It is perhaps one of your most precious possessions. And God wants you to live with an eternal perspective, so it's good. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 7 says, The memory of the righteous is blessed, but the name of the wicked will rot. I've been reading the Gospel of Mark multiple times, and in Mark chapter 14, there's this really interesting scene where there's this woman named Mary, Mary of Bethany. She breaks open a vial of very costly perfume, and she pours it all over Jesus. That vial of perfume would have been extremely important because this ointment, you know, like he's talking about here in Ecclesiastes 7, this was uh, like referring to like costly perfume or like ointments that were used for medical purposes. Well, she takes out what would be like the equivalent of your life savings. I want you to think about your life savings. You know, $50, you know, $5 million, whatever you got. Imagine just pouring that all out on Jesus. This is, this is all yours. That's what this woman does. So moved is Jesus by this this expression of a lavish love that he makes this statement, says in Mark 14, 9, truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, mind you, Jesus wants and knew the gospel would go throughout the whole world. He says what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. I'll tell you what, Mary's name is going to be precious. She's a woman of high character and lavish love. Do you know what happens in the very next verses? Judas makes the decision to betray Jesus. And he goes to the high priest and says, listen, I'm willing to sell him out. Just tell me. Let's work out the financial deals on this. I want to make something off of him to destroy his name. Now, it's interesting. Uh, I believe Judas' parents had high hopes for him. You know what they named him? They named him Judah. Anybody know what that name means? It means praise. And they're like, man, we got a great son. And I mean, Judas, I mean, he had something going for him. Do you know who was in charge of all the, the money during Jesus' ministry? It was Judas. It was likely that he was the highest educated guy in the whole bunch. But, you know, Judas in the dash, he destroyed his character and his name. Let me ask you. Any of you actually name your kid Judas? Anybody do that? Huh, I, didn't, I didn't think so. Probably some pretty obvious reasons. How about Mary? Oh, that would be good if you're named Mary, right? That's a precious name. Friends, what are you doing with your name? You see, a good name is better than a good ointment. Look what else the text says in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Mourning is a better teacher than feasting. Look at verse 2. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting because that is the end of every man and the living takes it to heart. And what Solomon is saying is, listen, it's far better for you to go to an occasional funeral than a bunch of parties because parties never lead people to wisdom. But when God's got your full attention at a funeral, you might be thinking about the things that are really most important at life. And I've got some bad news for you. Did you know that in McLennan County, that the death rate is 100%? You might want to move. I mean, it's inevitable if you're living in this county. I don't know about elsewhere, but 
You might consider going someplace else. I don't care how much jogging you're doing or liposuction or, you know, all the organic foods that you're eating. You might extend your life. You might be healthier. And I'd encourage you to do that, really. It's, I want you around as long as possible. I want you to be as healthy as possible. But you can't escape the fact that life on this earth is temporal. But life is eternal and that it goes on. It's just that you're not always spending it on this earth. And what wise people do is they make the most of their time. And when they're at a funeral, they're actually processing Lord, what is most important? What's my legacy? What am I doing with my life? You see, pain makes you real. Pain has a way of having you think straight. And what wise men and wise women do when they face disease and disaster and destruction and even death, what it does is it cultivates a richer relationship with God. They start asking questions like, Lord, what am I supposed to learn about you and about life? They take the lessons to the heart. And instead of becoming bitter, they become better. But I want you to know it's a choice. Because, friends, you know, when you got hard times, everybody's got hard times. No one's exempt. If you are not relating these to God and seeing how he's even at work in the midst of them and seeing not only his sovereignty, but his grace in the midst of your pain, you're going to end up a bitter person, and it's going to contort you physically, it's going to destroy you emotionally, relationally, and it's going to have dire effects on you spiritually. And so what God does is he works in our life and he gives us wisdom. He wants us to have an eternal perspective. That's why he says it's better to go to a house of mourning than a house of feasting. Now, I just want you to know as a pastor, I appreciate when people are paying attention and I all of a sudden a couple of people like looked up what okay that's right I want you to know I appreciate that you know from a pastor's perspective like when you're like uh, doing a wedding you know kind of what happens there is you know you know that no one's really paying attention and all they do is like can you hurry up because this is what's happening and I know it you can see it in people's eyes I mean you want to know from my perspective you can see what's kind of almost going on like little thoughts in their heads you know like oh the boutonniere on the groomsman is crooked. Oh, you know, and like, oh, that flower girl is just adorable. You know what I'm saying? And, and the guys, they're, they're thinking about probably one of the most important parts of the wedding. It's like, what are we eating afterwards, right? And they're just like, you know, and that, and I get it, you know, and there's a lot to celebrate at weddings. I understand that. But, you know, when you're at a funeral, you got everybody's full attention. It doesn't matter where they've come from or what background they've got. All of a sudden now, they're faced with their own mortality. And they start processing and thinking about the things that are most important in your life. What happens at a funeral in a house of mourning is that you stop thinking about being a personal success and you start thinking about what does significance and influence look like? What's really important? And suffering draws us to the heart of God. And I want you to notice, even look at verse 3. Never underestimate the heart work that God accomplishes through hard times. He says, sorrow is better than laughter. For when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. He's not saying it's an either or situation. You either have the sorrowful life or the laughing life. Okay. Actually, the book of Ecclesiastes makes it clear. God wants you to enjoy life to its fullest. And you can't enjoy life apart from him. And laughter is good. And I encourage it. And you should laugh probably more than you do. It's just something about just enjoying life and you can laugh. But this kind of, this laughter, uh, this word could also be translated kind of like a contemptuous ridicule. Kind of the laughter scoring like, ha, 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 you know, that kind of laugh. And he's saying, you know what? Laughter. Sorrow is better than that kind of laughter. It, 
what sorrow does is it focuses you on the highest purposes of life. Hard times can make you wise. You learn to value God and his people more in times of sorrow. What happens in difficult times, it has a maturing and even a mellowing effect on your life as you learn to walk with God through the difficulties that you face, whether they be in your own life personally, in your family, people close to you. God's at work. There's a work that takes place in trials that just cannot be replicated in any other situation, especially just in, in just kind of like laughing your way through life. There's a woman by the name of Nancy Guthrie, and she wrote a book called Holding On to Hope, Drawn by Suffering to the Heart of God. And I'd like to read a brief excerpt. She writes, not long after my six-month-old daughter Hope died, I was at a cosmetics counter buying some mascara. Will this mascara run down my face when I cry? I asked. The girl behind the counter assured me it wouldn't and asked with a laugh in her voice, Are you going to be crying? Yes, I answered. I am. We had hope for 199 days. We loved her. We enjoyed her richly and shared her with everyone we could. We held her during her seizures and then we let her go. The day after we buried hope, my husband said to me, You know, I think we expected that our faith to make this hurt less, but it doesn't. Our faith gave us an incredible amount of strength and encouragement while we had hope. And we are comforted by the knowledge that she is in heaven. And our faith keeps us from being swallowed by despair. But I don't think it makes our loss hurt any less. It's only natural that people around me often ask searchingly, how are you? And for much of the first year after Hope's death, my answer was, I'm deeply and profoundly sad. I've been blessed with many people who've been willing to share my sorrow, to just be sad with me. Others, however, seem to want to rush me through my sadness. They want to fix me. But I lost someone I love dearly, and I'm sad. See, ours is not a culture that is comfortable with sadness. Sadness is awkward. It's unsettling. It ebbs and flows and takes its own shape. It, it beckons to be shared. It comes out in tears. And we don't quite know what to do with those tears. And many people are afraid to bring up my loss. They don't want to upset me. But my tears are the only way I have to release the deep sorrow I feel. I tell people, don't worry about crying in front of me. And don't be afraid that you will make me cry. Your tears tell me you care. And my tears tell you that you've touched me in a place that is meaningful to me. And I will never forget your willingness to share in my grief. Friends, that's the work that God does in the hard times. And we weep with those who weep. We understand that God is doing a work in a person's soul that cannot be replicated in any other circumstance. And we walk through them, with them. And we realize when we're the ones going through it, and it is hard, and it is painful, and sometimes it seems like you're almost like losing your mind, that we're starting to see God with clarity. And it's like he strips us away from everything and everything, everyone but himself. It's kind of like he, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, that God uses his power to make, uh, to make us make us perfect in our weakness. That's what happens. C.S. Lewis was a guy who was, had a lot of pain in his life. Uh, his mother dies when he's very young. 
uh, his dad just completely emotionally abandons him. Uh, all his teenage years, he had this serious respiratory problem. I don't know if you know this, but he actually uh, fought and was injured in World War I. And, uh, and of course, you may know this, that he, he buried his beloved wife. He writes about all these experiences of pain in his life in a book called um, The Problem of Pain. Some of his most famous lines are found in that book, and I just want to read a couple. Pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. That's what pain does. And notice what he says in verse 4 in Ecclesiastes 7. You see, wise people look for opportunities to reflect and refocus and to develop greater resolve in their relationship with God. But fools avoid a well-examined life. Look at verse 4. The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning. While the mind of fools, it's in the house of pleasure. The mind of a fool, it's like, man, life has just got to be a continual party. And I'm going to just kind of inebriate myself with laughter so I don't have to think about the deep issues of my life or even who I am. And it's kind of like you get the idea that, man, the fool, you know, his mind's at the bar. The fool thinks it's all just about feasting and just happiness and laughter. Even Christians might think, man, it's just got to be the life has got to be at the parties. And God says, listen. Far more important than your temporal happiness is the development of your character and your relationship with me. You know, God creates scenarios every once in a while, whether it be a funeral or some occasion in our life, some incident that snaps our full attention to have us consider how we're living. Are we really living with an eternal perspective? There's a couple movies that kind of accentuate this. There's a movie called The Doctor uh, with William Hurt. He plays the, this guy, he's an ace surgeon, Jack McKee. And this ace surgeon, man, he's like a machine. And he, he, just, he doesn't care about his patients. He doesn't care about his wife. He doesn't care about his family. That is until he develops a tumor. And it's a life-threatening tumor. And he encounters in this situation a very courageous, fatally ill woman named June. And... It's through June that he experiences and realizes the necessity of showing kindness in the medical profession and has him completely reconsider how he's living. There's another movie called Regarding Henry. Harrison Ford plays this unscrupulous corporate lawyer named Henry uh, Turner. And Turner, man, he's, he's also like a machine. And, of course, he's completely isolated from his family. He is ruthless. He is cutthroat. And uh, all that changes when he happens to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, He takes a bullet to the head in a botched robbery. And after he comes out of his coma, he realizes he's he's lost everything. Like amnesia is completely taken over. And he has to relearn everything. And he finds out how important it is to be a much kinder and more thoughtful person, which he becomes. I want you to know that God is committed to your growth. He wants you to have a good name. And I'd just like to ask, what's your present eulogy? What would be said by the folks at work or in your home or in your church? Are there any changes needed to be made on your future eulogy? You see, 
this is the moment that God wants you to really think closely about who you are, what you're becoming, and your character. And if you want to know, like, well, what shapes a person's legacy? Let me just give you a few thoughts. This is what shapes a person's legacy. The relationship with God that you enjoy. The people that you love. The messages that you share. The values that you hold. The work that you accomplish. And the investments that you make. And I just want to warn you of a great danger. The great danger to an eternal perspective is your lust. It is the world. It's even Satan himself. You see, lust doesn't want you to think about eternal perspective. It's all about here and now. What could make you happy in this moment? You see, the world wants you to focus on like possessions or power or position or some person that you think you could have. Like if I just have this person, my life will be wonderful, right? God wants you to think with an eternal perspective. You see, a short-term perspective is really the life of the fool. But an eternal perspective is in the path of wisdom. And and I'll just tell you that some of us have made a royal mess of our lives, haven't we? And that's why God has given us a royal redeemer. He has given us Christ, despite what we've done and all of the wickedness that we've done. Yeah, we may not be totally public on it, but look at all the thoughts that have gone through your head. Look at the actions of your hands and the words that you've said. I mean, some of us had to move to other parts of the country because of the mess that we left in the last place. I want you to know that there is a God who loves you so much. He's given his son to be a redeemer, to not only give you forgiveness of sins, to give you new life so that you have a new name. So that let's see what it looks like with this, his son's life living through you. That's the beauty of the gospel. You know, what kind of life does Jesus give? Anybody happen to know? He gives eternal life. John three sixteen. You might want to look it up. Why does he give eternal life? So that we will experience the joy of knowing God forever. And that we will, by virtue of having eternal life, have an eternal perspective on this life. We will live differently. We will live in his wisdom and we will live in his joy. And what we need is a vision for maturity. Maturity in Christ, growing deep, reaching out to others in this relationship with Christ. You and I, we want to have a good name. We want to walk with wisdom. You might want to be discipled by someone. Find a good mentor who's going to keep you from blowing up your life, who will care enough about you to say, listen, friend, this direction you're going It's not going to end well. This is not the path. Someone that will affirm you and love you. And you might want to just, when when you're kind of questioning, what should I do and how should I live? Ask God this question, like, how does this behavior, this action, or this pattern, or this attitude honor God? How will it affect my relationships, my integrity, and my legacy? Because how we live our life echoes in eternity. An eternal perspective is the most productive and priceless possession. In 1867, there was a Swedish chemist by the name of Alfred Nobel, and uh, he invented this new high explosive that he called dynamite. The thought was he was so convinced that his invention would make war too horrible to ever happen again, but much to his just horror, his discovery and his development of dynamite made him all of a sudden incredibly wealthy because countries and people couldn't get enough of it. 
And they were using it on each other in conflicts and in war. And it literally just tore him apart. And he hated the fact that his invention actually was leading to all this destruction and death. And one day when he woke up late in the 19th century, he read the morning newspaper and discovered that he had died. He hadn't died, but his brother had died. And a newspaper writer thought it was Alfred that had died. And so he wrote his obituary in the paper. And this is what Alfred Nobel read. Alfred Nobel, the inventor of dynamite, who died yesterday, devised a way for more people to be killed in war than ever before. And he died a very rich man. He was horrified. Reading this had such a profound effect upon his life. He was determined that he was going to know, be known for something other than death, misery, and destruction. And so he used all of his funds to create a prize and an award for scientists and writers who foster peace. You may have heard of this, the Nobel Prize. He's the one who founded it because he wanted to change his legacy. And he wrote... Every man ought to have the chance to correct his epitaph in midstream and write a new one. And so the question I got to ask you is, what are you doing with what you've got left? Lord, teach us to number our days so that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. What are you going to do with the life that you have remaining? Let's pray. Lord, only you and your word so profoundly can have us think about what is most important in life. Relationship with you, a good name, character, your character being manifested in ours. And Lord, you know we fall so short. That's why you've given us a savior. And so for someone who has come here today who has never really trusted Christ. Maybe they've heard about Jesus. Maybe they've been in church for a while, but they've never really trusted Jesus. Well, they just pray with me now and say, Lord, I turn from myself and my sin. And this morning, I believe in Jesus and I trust in him. And I ask, Lord, that you might establish a good name, a new name, your name in my life. And Lord, for all of us, may we realize You are after profound effects and a deep work in each of our souls that would bring you great glory. And we do so by living with an eternal perspective, walking in the wisdom you've given us in your word. And so we pray that this would be a reality in Jesus name. Amen.